Well, we lost a battle this week. The state Senate voted for Washington to become the seventh state in America to redefine marriage. From God's definition, not your definition or my definition, but God's definition of marriage, one man for one woman. And our state decided, in its wisdom, to join with the wisdom of other states who have done this before us. And uh, more battles will follow. There is already a move to put this on the November ballot and put it before the people of Washington. And although I'm, I, polls are interesting things because I've already seen one poll saying that it wouldn't pass and another poll saying that well over 50% of Washingtonians are, are for redefining marriage. So I don't know what will happen with that. But for now, I was greatly encouraged by an email from Spencer this week One line, he just wrote, We lost a battle, but we've won the war. Praise the Lord. And remember that. Anytime you are burdened in this world, anytime that you're battle fatigued in this present age, you've been praying, you've been hoping, you've been waiting, and the thing that happens is not the thing that you hoped for, remember in this present age we have final victory in Jesus. Remember that He has won... He has declared His authority. He is the authority. And we will one day be in His presence and experience that that perfect kingdom. And I so look forward to that. Colossians 1.19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, a day of reckoning is coming when all things will be reconciled. For good or for bad, God is going to make everything exactly right. Now, oddly enough, we're in the book of burdens. <laughs> Isaiah 13 through 23, and it's called the book of burdens because there are nine separate oracles, or you know the word means burdens that are coming out through the prophet Isaiah to the nation surrounding Israel. And the critical issue through all of these burdens, the reason why these woes are being spoken, is because man wants to do it his way instead of God's way. Man wants to function by his power instead of the Spirit's power. Man wants to do things by his strength instead of the strength of the Lord. Man wants to stand on his intelligence instead of the wisdom of God. And so the Lord pours out woes. Really, warnings in these burdens. This is where you're headed. This is what's going to happen. And so many of these things can be applied to the nations of the world today, including our own. And we see that as we wander through these things. Now, we already looked at chapter 13. Uh, We recognize that as the first burden against Babylon, Satan's city. Then chapter 14, as we talked about Sunday, the burden turns to a taunt. And it's a taunt of the king of Babylon, not just the human agent, but the literal, actual king of Babylon through all history, which is Satan himself. We see Satan described in chapter 14. We looked at that. Where he came from, why he fell, how he functions, his his M.O., which is still at work in the world today, the father of all lies, the thief who would kill and steal and destroy. But now it slides back into the human agency. The human king of Babylon, and I'm not talking about Belshazzar. I'm not talking about Nabonidus or any of these other guys. The human agent of Satan in Babylon. Watch this, chapter 14, verse 18. We'll pick it up right there. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, 
But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit. Like a trampled corpse, you will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will make it a possession for the hedgehog, Sonic by name, and swamps of water, I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. This could apply to so many human agents down through the years. So many agents of Satan, so many who function as literally puppets, human tools. The list is long. And Buchsbosen in his commentary that I've mentioned many times before, it's a good one to have on your shelf, Victor Buchsbosen's Isaiah. But he writes, the name Babylon in the scriptures itself became a synonym of all that which is ungodly, and wicked, of all the powers and human institutions which defy God and exalt themselves against Him. But as I read this last section of chapter 14, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I didn't see much talk about this. I saw a hint toward this in one commentary, but no one else touched this. And I thought it was interesting because my opinion, I think we're talking very specifically about the last king of Babylon. I think chapter 14 makes that very clear that this closing section of chapter 14 is about Antichrist. Antichrist, who comes riding in Revelation chapter 6, described as riding with a temporary crown. This rider on the white horse has a a Stephanus in the Greek, a temporary crown. It will not last. That leafy crown that you would see and the winner of of an Olympic game might be wearing or a Roman gladiatorial fight. He's riding with a bow. No arrows. But a bow. very first mention of a bow in the Bible is the rainbow. Speaking of covenant, I believe Antichrist is riding with a false covenant. A covenant that he will break. Also in Revelation chapter 6, you watch, he's coming riding to conquer, conquering and to conquer. And he's followed in that chapter by war, famine, death, martyrdom, and terror. So the first rider mentioned in Revelation 6 is clearly one who would be another Christ. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he, like the devil before him in the distant past, Antichrist in the soon-to-come future, will attempt to raise himself up as God. Paul says, and seat himself on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem, declaring himself to be God, but he is just another human proxy. That's all he is. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that tells us, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now you know so much has been made about this. In fact, I was going to share a few things. I ended up cutting them out because there's a lot of silly tripe and, and hype about the 666. Here's the bottom line. 666 is the number that never gets to 7. It's never complete. It is the incomplete number. It's the most incomplete number. It's a man without God. 
It's humanity without Christ, never arriving at the place of completion. You see, the Bible says in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's how you get to seven. Complete in Christ. The 666 never arrives there. Without Christ in you, you will never be complete. That's something the world has has yet to understand. Without Jesus and that critical relationship, you never reach the place of of feeling complete, of being complete, of finding that, that contentment that can only come through and by Jesus. And so Antichrist is the world's most incomplete man. Rick, why do you think it's Antichrist? Well, a couple of things. Look at verse 19. It says you've been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. That's interesting because Jesus is the accepted branch. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we read before. In fact, look back there real quickly. Just read the verse. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch, a netzer, from his roots will bear fruit. Jesus is the branch that springs out of the root of Jesse, the son of David. He is the one who was both before Jesse and after Jesse. Before David and after David, the branch, God's righteous branch. Jeremiah says, I will raise up for you a righteous branch. He will branch out from where he is. And he will rule righteously. And Jesus is the righteous branch, but here we have a rejected branch. The word branch there is Netzer. Same word, but this one's rejected. You see, that's the whole thing about Antichrist. Antichrist, the the word in the Greek doesn't necessarily mean against Christ, although he is. But Antichrist in, in the Greek form literally means another Christ. One who would set himself up as the alternative to Christ. One who would call himself the actual Messiah instead of this Christ who came before. This is the rejected branch. And he's cast out of his tomb. He's not buried in glory. He doesn't have a place to rest. He's cast out of his tomb, this rejected branch. By the way, the word rejected is interesting. It's ta'ab in the Hebrew, and it means to be abhorred, to be detested, or to be an abomination. As in the abomination of desolation. He is the rejected branch. This detestable branch, not the branch from Jesse, This other Christ sets himself up as the replacement for Christ, but he's no real branch at all. says, clothed with the slain, who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. Verse 20, you will not be united with them in burial, that is, with, with kings of old, with glorious kings who have their resting place in some mausoleum or some memorial or some, some kingly grave. You won't be among them. No, you have... Ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. And what happens to Antichrist? At the coming of Jesus Christ, before he sets up his great kingdom, guess what happens to Antichrist? He doesn't even go into the grave. He is thrown directly into the lake of fire. Revelation 19 verse 20. The beast was seized. The beast is Antichrist. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceives those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake which, uh, of fire which burns with brimstone. Okay, I will tell you this one. The 666. This is just one of those curious, kind of bizarre things. May not mean anything. 
Or it could mean something. I'll let you decide. The Pope wears a gold crown on, on the face of one of his, you know, his big hats. On the gold crown, there's writing that I, I believe it's, if I'm going to get this wrong, it's Vicarious Feely Day in the Latin. Vicarious Feely Day, Vicar of God, in essence. You know that the Latin also, the Roman numerals are also numbers in Latin. If you add up all the numbers among the Roman numerals on the crown of the Pope, it adds up to 666. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't know if that means anything. You know, it is interesting. I would think if... It, what? Not quite seven. I, I think if I was the Pope, I'd say, could we just order a new hat? How about one that just says, cool dude in the Latin? I'm sure that would be okay. Interesting, I mention that simply because you've got the beast, Antichrist, and you have the false prophet. There are two who will function in unison together. There is going to be a religious leader in the tribulation. One who will call the world to a global church. And he will call the world to ultimately worship Antichrist. And that's his role. The priest and the beast. And these two will function together. And they both will be tossed out when Jesus comes into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Revelation 19.21 says, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of Him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And you might think, Man, Rick, we started out kind of heavy tonight. It's the book of burdens. (laughs) It is a little heavy. But understand that all those who follow the beast on the earth will follow Him in to death. Verse 21 of chapter 14 says, Prepare for His sons a place of slaughter. Because of the iniquity of their fathers, they must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the faces of the world with cities. You see, the Lord will allow a country. He will allow nations. He will even allow the spread of evil to a degree. But He will not allow it ever again to cover the entire face of the earth without maintaining a righteous remnant without protecting the earth against falling to evil. It will not fall to evil. Hey, good news. The world is not going to fall to evil. The world is going to be right in the hand of God. And He's going to bring it to its just conclusion. Verse 21 going on, uh, 22 going on, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. That's a frightening thought. I will cut off from Babylon name and survivor offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. And note that he says, declares the Lord in verse 22. says again, declares the Lord in the Lord of hosts in verse 23. It's Naum Yahweh Zebaoth. And that phrase is a solemn decree of the Lord of hosts. It's a solemn decree. I decree that I will do this. So when the Lord declares it, you better believe it. It will happen. Now, from Babylon, we move on into the second or the next burden here. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, verse 24, Just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. 
interesting because Assyria didn't fall until 609 BC, but the Lord broke Assyria in his land in 701 BC. You remember the story. We in fact just went over it rather recently about how 2 Kings 18 and 19, 185,000 military corps of Assyria became 185,000 military corpses of Assyria. All camped out there around Jerusalem, ready to take down the city. It was impossible. There was no salvation, no way out. Hezekiah and Isaiah, they gather together. They're praying. The people are praying. The next morning, they get up, they look out, and all of the Assyrian army are dead. In a very short time after it, that same year, as a matter of fact, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was assassinated in Nineveh by his own two sons. And so in 701, the ball started rolling that ultimately would begin a 92-year slide of disintegration for Assyria. Assyria would fall again in 609, but God says, yeah, but it starts when you come against me. That's something to understand, and John Corson puts it this way, that the, the wheels of judgment grind slowly but thoroughly. It may take 92 years for judgment ultimately to be meted out, but God is going to do it, and He does with Assyria. But watch this in verse 26. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand, God talking about His hand, that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Assyria fell first. Babylon fell next. But these epic falls of these epic countries, of these massive world powers, gang, they are mere examples of what is coming on all the nations of the earth. God did those things in the first place to judge those nations, but in the second place to show us judgment will come upon the face of the planet and it's going to look like this only worldwide. It's interesting because Isaiah's prophecies, they're just stunningly panoramic. You can almost imagine, if you will, Isaiah standing atop a tall mountain and looking out over history. And he's looking out and he sees the present and then he sees the immediate present that he prophesies about. But off there in the distance, he sees what's coming. God allows him to speak of the distant future, the time at the end, I believe, of this age. And Isaiah lays all this out in in serious warning. Yes, this is a woe. This is a burden for Assyria. Yes, it was a burden for Babylon. But it is a woe to the planet. And again, the problem is, same problem that those nations have, that we have today, is people aren't listening. People are not looking to God. They're forgetting all about their Creator. They're forgetting all about His design. And verse 28 goes on then and says, In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. And we're about to slide right into the next oracle. But before we do, I want to make a quick comment about the death of Ahaz. You might know it in your Bibles if you want to. King Ahaz died in 715 B.C. That's when he finally was uh, put out of his misery. And the death of Ahaz was welcomed by many. Because he was a wicked king. He was king in Judah, but one of the really, really bad guys. 
And in his wickedness, he ruled for 13 years. 13 wicked years. And I'm sure at the time of his death, there was hope that the next president, uh, the next king, would get the country back on the right track. That's what we need, see. We need a new guy sitting in the seat of power to get this country back on the right track. And if we vote in the right guy, if the son of Ahaz is better, and by the way, Hezekiah was better, but if the next king, if the next leader, if the next president, get the point, it's not a newt or a mitt or a rick that's going to make any difference. It is not four more years of Obama that's going to make any difference. What will make the difference... What this nation needs more than anything else, more than all the reforms talked about, is a spiritual reform where America turns its eyes on Jesus. And if our country does not turn its eyes on Jesus, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. It's not going to make a a hill of beans difference, as my dad used to say. I never understood that. A hill of beans. What if you like beans? You know? What if you're into burritos? Maybe that anyway, I'm sorry. I'm off track here. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him, Jesus, are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Not in man. Not in government. Not even in Olympia to do the right thing. Security is never found in the coronation of a new leader or the conquering of a new leader. So in the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. Now the question that we might ask is, which oracle is he talking about? In the year King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Well, was it the oracle we just read about Assyria, or is it the oracle that we're about to read about Philistia? And in a way, it's both. Because, and i got to give you some history here, when Ahaz died and Hezekiah came on the scene, Scripture tells us Hezekiah uh, mounted a great military machine in Judah. They started to push back the other nations. And they pushed back Philistia out of Ekron and Gath and Ashdod and Ashkelon all the way down the seacoast to Gaza. What would amount to the Gaza Strip today, Philistia was boxed up in Gaza, kind of like Hamas and the Palestinians in that area. Hezekiah did that, pushed them all the way back. But something else happened. Four years later, in 711 B.C., Assyria came around and overtook Ashdod which at that point would have been under Judah's control, under Hezekiah's control. And the Philistines, watching all this happen, having been driven out of Ashdod, and now Ashdod has been freed from the Judahites, the Jews, and Assyria's got it, the Philistines may at that point have gone, alright, good, now Judah's going to get theirs. Maybe we might even be able to move back to Ashdod, you know, if the Assyrians are nice folk. Little problem. Syria were not nice folk. And so he says in verse 29, Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. The rod that struck you is probably referring to the scepter of David. That is the royalty of Hezekiah who struck Philistia. Don't rejoice about that, for from the serpent's root, a viper will come out and its fruit will be a flying serpent. 
some commentators try to connect the serpent's root, the viper, and the flying serpent to Judah, Hezekiah, and Jesus. I think they're wrong. I think they're missing it here. The serpent's root. What is the root of all carnage and destruction in history? Satan is. Satan, the serpent. The thief who, who again comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, John 10.10 tells us. The viper and the flying serpent most likely indicate Assyria's poisonous defeat of Philistia that caused the Philistines' final disappearance from the land. But Judah would miraculously remain. Now watch this closely, verse 30. Isaiah prophesies, Those who are most helpless will eat, and the needy will lie down in security. Who's he talking about? Judah. The Jewish people. They're in trouble. In fact, he's looking ahead. They're going to be completely surrounded by mighty Assyria, this venomous serpent. They will be surrounded, but they're going to be secure. I will destroy your root, he's talking now to Philistia, with famine, and will kill off your survivors. See, almost you, you want to make that division there in the middle of verse 30, that the first half, the helpless and the needy, are Judah. The second half, the destroyed root and the killed off survivors, are Philistia. And they are completely decimated. Verse 31, Wail, O gate! Cry, O city! Melt away, O Philistia, all of you! For smoke comes from the north. That is Assyria. And that's another reason that I believe the serpent and the flying serpent and the viper, the viper coming from the serpent, the serpent being Satan, the viper being the human agency, which is Assyria, and the flying serpent, Assyria coming down. From Smoke comes from the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. They come riding in hard and fast, and they destroyed the Philistines. How then, verse 32, will one nation... Answer when the mess will one how then will one answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it? What does that mean? It's believed that the, the Philistines, in a last ditch effort to save themselves, sent messengers, sent an envoy to Jerusalem and said, Ally with us, fight with us against the Philistines. But the answer that Hezekiah would have given, the answer Isaiah gives right here, that came from the Lord, is no. No, my people will not be allied with the Philistines. My people will remain secure on Zion. Zion will only protect His people. That's the answer they receive. And so... Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us, A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And that's the last time the Bible will mention the Philistines. They literally disappear. As the burden warned, they completely evaporate as a people. They dissolve into the melting pot of the nations of the earth, never to be a people again. Never to be a people again. What about the Palestinians? We've talked about that. That the Palestinians are not, they're not European, which the Philistines were. The Philistines came up from Crete. They, they sailed across the Aegean Sea and they encamped on the western uh, corners of, of Israel. They were not an Arabic people. Yasser Arafat, founder of the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was himself an Egyptian. And the Palestinians of today are primarily Jordanian. They're Arabic people. 
And I'm not trying to be discompassionate or all down on the Palestinians, especially those who are being used by their leadership. But the truth is there are no Philistines today. The Palestinians of today are a new people as of the mid-60s. You can do more research on that, and I've got some great books that I can show you if you're curious about those things. So, at this point in the burdens, it's bye-bye Babylon, adios Assyria, and peace out Philistia. They're all, they're all gone. Chapter 15, verse 1. The burden or oracle concerning Moab. Surely in the night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in the night, Kir of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple and to Debon, even to the high places to weep. Moab wails over Mount Nebo, which, by the way, this is Jordan today. Mount Nebo is in Jordan. We're going to see that on the Israel trip, those who head on down there. Uh, They wail over Nebo and Medeba, which today is Madaba. The same uh, city is still there in a different form. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off, which is a picture of shame. In their streets they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Heshbon, Eliela also cry out, and their voice is heard all the way to Yahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. My heart cries out for Moab. Oh, the compassion of Isaiah. His fugitives are as far as Zoar, which is in Edom. Eglath, Shalishiah. For they go up the ascent of Luhith, weeping. Surely on the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. The tender grass died out. There is no green thing. What's being talked about in these few verses is the Moabites fleeing south to Edom. And even as they flee that through what would be fertile country, it would produce nothing for them as they're trying to escape the onslaught of the Assyrians. And they're rushing and they're crying and they're weeping. Verse 7, Therefore the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brooks of the poplars or of Arabim which means the poplars. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. Its wail goes as far as Egleim, and its wailing even to Bir Elim. For the waters of Demon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab, upon the remnant of the land. And you can almost hear as you read through that chapter the, the words catching in Isaiah's throat. It's interesting because for Moab, he has an intense compassion. You hear him. These are burdens to the prophet. These are difficult things for him. He's he's struggling just to get the words out. My heart cries out to Moab, or for Moab, he says. He'll say down in chapter 16, verse 9, I weep bitterly for Hatzair. I will drench you with my tears, he says. Down in verse 11 of chapter 16, Therefore my heart intones like a harp. For Moab, literally my entrails murmur. (laughs) My guts are torn apart about this burden, he's saying to Moab. My inward feelings for Kir Haraset. And so Isaiah feels for, for this people. Why? Who are the Moabites? Why such emotion for them? Well, they're descendants of the illegitimate son of Lot by the name of Moab. 
You may remember the story after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot takes his daughters up into the hills above Zoar. And they don't even come back into the city. Lot is so freaked out by all this. He doesn't want to live in a city anymore. He had enough Sodom and Gomorrah for a lifetime. So he's staying in a mountain cave with his two daughters. The two daughters understand the Bible calls Lot righteous. Righteous Lot. He was not living in Sodom and Gomorrah in enjoyment. He was like many of you living in Sodom and Gomorrah in pain, in anguish and sorrow over all that he knew was going on around him. His daughters were raised, however, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And these two girls got their father drunk and each one went in and bedded their father so that they could have an offspring. Genesis 19.36 says, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Their firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So that's where it started. He is an offspring of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, the man blessed by God through whom he would bless all the nations of the earth. So Abraham to Lot to Moab, and here are the Moabites. And the Moabites would have an interesting relationship with Israel down through the years. Sometimes enmity, sometimes fighting and duking it out. Other times, they would be friendly. They'd actually function well as neighboring countries. Moab and Edom are Jordan of today. My, how national dynamics don't ever seem to change. Because Jordan and Israel get along well, most of the time. Unless the rest of the... Islamic nations around Israel begin to get angry and furious and try to go against Israel. And then it's like Jordan throwing up their hands saying, well, we have no choice. We've got to go with our Arab brothers. And so they join in. But aside from that, they typically have a decent relationship. Well, that's a lot like Moab and Israel in times past. When the children of Israel came up from Egypt, it was the Moabites who denied them passage. They're distant cousins. No, you cannot go through our land. In fact, the Moabite king, a guy by the name of Balak, remember him? Balak calls on a seer, a wimpy, weird little guy named Balaam who talks to donkeys. <laughs> Balaam comes along and Balak calls him and says, I want you to curse Israel. Stand up on this mountain with me and curse these people. And he tries in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, and he tries to no avail. A little bit later on, in the days of the judges, Moab had another king by the name of Eglon, who was a big oppressor of Israel, and I mean big. Eglon is described, not my words, this is Judges 3.17, bluntly says Eglon was a very fat man. In fact, he was so corpulent. Isn't that a great word? I'm feeling a little corpulent today. He was so big that when the left-handed judge of Israel, Ehud, drove his sword into Eglon's belly, the Bible says, Judges 3.22, the handle went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Yeah. (laughs) Gut-wrenching. But it wasn't all bad blood between Moab and Israel. A Moabite woman would become David's great-grandmother. You know her well. Her name is Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 through 22 shows that lineage, that connection of Ruth marrying uh, Boaz and then their children. And and David is right of that line. And of course, you know where that line ultimately ended up as well. Jesus Christ. And Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Marvelous. A Moabite. 
And David hid his parents in Moab when Saul was trying to kill him. 1 Samuel 23 tells that story. Mom and Dad, pack up your stuff. He's after me. I don't want you hurt. They take them to Moab. And the Moabites welcome them in and, and give them sanctuary. So sometimes it was okay. Sometimes it was bad, but overall, and especially in Isaiah's day, Moab was a pain in Israel's eastern side. (laughs) There's a spiritual application here, and I wouldn't have caught this. I was reading a kind of obscure commentary um, by Ironside, and Ironside's another great uh, Bible teacher, Bible student. But he pointed this out, and I, I gave this some thought. There's a spiritual application between legitimate and illegitimate children of God. See, Moab was the illegitimate child, right? Uh, God still provided some blessing. I, I think the reason that you see Isaiah's heart breaking when he talks about Moab and when he delivers this burden for Moab is because, though an illegitimate child, there's still a connection. God still has a heart for, like he had a heart for Ishmael. God loved and protected and blessed Ishmael. Even though it was from sin that the whole thing came about. Such is the compassion of our God. But here's the thing, and I just allow me to pause for a moment and rabbit trail into Moab's territory. Some things to note. Being human, and we've talked about this recently, but I want to underscore this. Being human does not automatically make me a child of God. You hear it all the time. Well, we're all children of God. We're all His children, and we say that, people say that because they try to draw back to creation, and and we all come from that, from the line of, of Adam and Noah and all the way back. But being a human being does not automatically make me a legitimate child of God. How can you say that, Rick? Matthew 7.22, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You think Jesus wouldn't know his own children? But to make the point a little further, John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, As many who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How are you a child of God in the world today? Through receiving Jesus Christ. That's how you become a child of God. Otherwise, illegitimate. To be a legitimate child of God. And neither tradition nor church affiliation will make you a legitimate child of God. And again, we've talked about this. I'm not going over new ground. You can't stand before the Lord and say, well, I was a Methodist. Yeah, but I was Baptist. I went to Calvary. I went to the bridge, Lord. Your affiliation doesn't make you a legitimate child of God. Jesus said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To be a child of God, you've got to be born again. If you're not born again, you're not a legitimate child of God. And any claims to being a child of God without being born again are illegitimate claims. Let me push it a little bit further here. Spiritual legitimacy, legitimacy as a child of God, is manifest in a desire to please God. And if someone says, I'm a Christian, but does not desire to please God, then I question, are you really a Christian? Or are you, in fact, illegitimate? 
John chapter 5, verse 30, and Jesus is the example. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus said in John 8, 47, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear the words of God, because you are not of God, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who Jesus, I believe, would say are illegitimate. Because their actions don't bear out their legitimacy. John chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus said, I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. What are you getting at, Rick? That the legitimate Christian lives to be about the will of the Father. The legitimate Christian says, if you run across something in Scripture that is contrary to what you thought before, you change what you thought. If you run across something in Scripture that is different than the way you would like it to be, you go with the way Scripture says because the legitimate child of God wants to please the Father and not please the self or even please other people. He wants to please God. Whether you're a pastor or a baker or a candlestick maker or a senator, if you are a legitimate child of God, You're going to do what God says. Not what your constituents ask for. Not what you think is the best thing in your own head. I wonder how many Christians sat in the Washington Senate and voted to lower the definition of marriage from God's standard to man's standard this last week. I really do. I wonder how many of the senators would claim Christ. Those who voted yes, let's do it. Our senator from this legislative district, Mary Margaret Haugen, She uh, issued a statement yesterday declaring why she voted for the passage of the bill. For several weeks now, she says, I have heard from people of my district. They've shared what's in their hearts and minds. I've also received many letters, emails, phone calls, very heartfelt from both sides of the issue. I've received a number of very negative comments from both sides. From some people, this is a simple issue. I envy them. It has not been simple or easy for me. She wrote, to some degree, this is generational. (laughs) Years ago, I took exception to my parents' beliefs on certain social issues, and today my children take exception to some of mine. Times change, even if it makes us uncomfortable. I think we should all be uncomfortable sometime. None of us knows everything, and it's important, listen to this, it's important to have our beliefs questioned. Only one being in this world is omniscient, and it's not me. And she's right. So my question is, why not listen to Him? If you're not omniscient and you're vague on the issue or you're not sure how to answer, ask Him. What do you say, Lord? I have very strong Christian beliefs, she writes. And personally, I've always said, when I accepted the Lord, I became more tolerant of others, I stopped judging people, and I try to live by the golden rule. And see, this is the problem with the whole homosexual agenda here. It's it's not an issue of judging someone's lifestyle choice, even if you disagree with that choice. It's an issue of what does the Lord say? What is right? You don't lower the standard of righteousness to help people become more righteous. Because lowering the standard of righteousness makes people go, oh cool, I can be less righteous. You bring it down, I'll go down. She wrote further, this issue isn't just about what I believe, it's about respecting others, including people who have 
different, who may believe differently than I. It's about whether everyone has the same opportunities for love and companionship and family and security that I have enjoyed. And, and I respond to that, again, saying, everybody has the right to choose the life they want to choose. God allows that. God is pro-choice. Did you know that? He's not pro-abortion. But he's pro-choice. He's the one who created free will. He's the one who said, you can do with this life as you please. Here's my standard. And you can choose that or you can do whatever. That's your choice. But sometimes when we make choices, that's the thing. If I make a choice over here, I don't get the benefit of this over here. I don't get the benefit of, of a lifetime of love and companionship if I choose an alternative lifestyle that is unbiblical. It, it's not going to work. Do I respect people who feel differently, she says. Now she says, ours is truly a big tent. While the tent may grow and shrink according to the political winds of the day, it should never shrink when it comes to, to our rights as individuals. And this is why the burdens of the Lord were given through Isaiah. It is not about the rights of the individual. It is about His righteousness. My rights, His righteousness. Yeah, but what about my rights? What about His righteousness? I'm upset by all this because it so flies in the face of simple godly truth. And I don't know. I don't know where all of you stand on all this as I just you know blather away my opinion. But, well, thank you. And I don't know if there are people who, who come to the bridge who think, well, Rick, I think you're too harsh and you're too unloving when it comes to the homosexual community and all of that. Gang, all people need Jesus. But we are not going to save the world by lowering God's standards. In fact, it was the standard of righteousness that made me realize just how sinful I was and how desperately I needed Jesus. If we lower that down to where it's, it's you know, Oscar Milk Toast Christianity, why change? Why even try to be godly? She ends this saying, My preference would be to put this issue on the ballot and give all Washingtonians the opportunity to wrestle with this issue. Well, we'll see if the Senate allows that. I do not know that there are the votes to put it to a ballot measure. So forced to make a choice, my choice is to allow all men and women in our state to enjoy the same privileges that are so important in my life. I will vote in favor of marriage equality. And it's not marriage equality, gang. It's redefining marriage. Because marriage is absolutely and clearly, according to God's words, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the way God defines it. Any other definition is a human definition, not a godly one. So we got the Moabites. We've got illegitimate and we've got legitimate. The legitimate Christian seeks the will of the Father, not the will of the self. And we've got to be more about that. Brothers and sisters here at the bridge, we have got to be more about the will of the Father than the will of Rick or the will of any of us personally, what makes us comfortable, what we like to do, what we're about. No, forget all that. What is the will of the Father? What does God want to do with this fellowship and with your life? And in this area. And some might say, well, Rick, I, I think you're being a little judgmental of, of Senator Haugen, you know, by questioning the legitimacy of her Christianity. Perhaps I am. But I'll tell you what, when a person claims Christ, they now, I now have the right to judge that. Did you know that? That you have the right to judge my relationship in Jesus? And I hope you do. I hope if you see me living contrary to what I speak or say or preach, if you see me acting differently that you'll pull me aside and go, that's not right. That's, that's contrary to the will of God. You have that right. Where do you get that, Rick? 1 Peter 4.17 It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, the question here is not what is the will of the people. It's what is the will of the Father. If we want to be legitimate children of God, if we want to claim legitimacy as Christians, then we're going to be about the Father's will far beyond our own. One more thing on this Moab trail. A little different direction, but something to think about. A legitimate child of God does not set himself or herself against God's people Israel. And that was Moab's problem. They set themselves against Israel. They went head to head with God's people. And if you are truly a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to put yourself against His people Israel. Christ at the checkpoint. Have you heard about this? The Christ at the checkpoint conference. It's now the second one they're holding at the Bethlehem Bible College in Bethlehem. And uh, it's supported by the World Council of Churches and the Global Ministry of the United Churches of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. And uh, it is a serious move back to replacement theology, but now in evangelical Christianity. Now for a long time, at least for the last generation or so, evangelical Christianity was moving away from replacement theology and recognizing Israel's right to exist and recognizing our place in supporting God's people, but there's starting to be a swing in the opposite direction. Israel is an illegal apartheid state. Israel has committed crimes against humanity. All of this is coming out of this Christ at the Checkpoint conference. And there are such notables as people like Tony Campolo who are right on board with this. I don't know if you've heard of or know who Tony Campolo is, but he's an evangelical preacher. I used to listen to all kinds of teaching from him. I had several of his books. I don't know where he's going. Bible tells me, Psalm 122, verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And you know what the rabbis teach on that verse? Rabbis teach that the, for the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you, that that's a Gentile saying that. That that's a phrase for a Gentile to speak for an Israelite, for a Jewish people, for the sake of my brothers, my friends. Do you consider the Jewish people your friends? Do you consider them your brothers and sisters? Because at least one good Moabite did, and her name again was Ruth. She said in Ruth 1.16, Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And because of that, God brought this outsider, this illegitimate Ruth, into legitimacy in the line of David as his great-grandmother and Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Back to the burdens. Chapter 16, as Isaiah continues to weep his way through the burden, verse 1, Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah, by the way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. Give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer, for the extortioner has come to an end, destruction has ceased, oppressors have completely disappeared from the land, a throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt 
in righteousness. Moab could find legitimacy one way if they would seek out the one who comes on the throne of David. If they would seek protection through the Jewish people looking toward this one who would reign one day. That's Jesus. But this is serious business spiritually today. This whole legitimacy, illegitimacy issue. Because those, listen, those who claim to be children of God, but whose faith is illegitimate, not born again, not trusting in or seeking out the will of the Father, not loving His people, these types of people will be headed for the same outcome as Moab. Read on. We're going to come back, by the way, and dig into those first five verses more on Sunday because there's a lot there. Verse 6 continuing, We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride. Even of his arrogance, pride, and fury, his idle boasts are false. Therefore, Moab will fall. Everyone of Moab will fall. You will mourn for the raisin cakes of Kir Hareset. What is that about? It's probably a local specialty of some kind. Something that was unique to Moab. You know, kind of like mourning for the loss of Krispy Kreme in Mount Vernon. That's the idea. And those who are utterly stricken. Of course, I don't know. If we were taken out, I'm not sure I'd be so worried about Krispy Kreme. Verse 8. For the fields of Heshbon have withered the vines of Sibma as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters which reached as far as Hatzer and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Hatzer, for the vine of Sibma. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliala, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. In other words, their joy. The joy at harvest time, the fun of all the gathering of the fruit. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. Therefore my heart intones like a harp for Moab, and my inward feelings for Kir Haraseth. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray that he will not prevail. Nothing's going to help you, Moab. Nothing's going to help the illegitimate child who seeks some way to get to God, any way other than Jesus Christ. It will not prevail. And this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab, which now the Lord speaks saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population and his remnant will be very small and impotent. And in exactly three years of the telling of this burden, Assyria swooped down on Moab and wiped it out. Just as Isaiah prophesied. Legitimizing his prophetic voice. But he says here at the end, he says, this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. Earlier? When was the earlier word of the Lord spoken concerning Moab? One possible uh, place is Amos chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. 
Amos gives a similar prophecy, a burden against Moab, that probably happened just prior to Isaiah giving this one. I don't think that's the one that's being talked about. I think the earlier word of the Lord warning Moab was given over a thousand years before when Balaam tried to curse Israel. Back in Numbers 22, 23, 24. Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam, brings him up to a high mountain and says, I want you to curse these people. I'll pay you well. So he starts to open his mouth to curse and blessing comes out. He can't do it. He does this four times. Every time Balak takes Balaam to the top of the mountain, curse Israel, he opens his mouth and nothing but blessing comes out. But the fourth time is by far the most profound. Because in that fourth blessing, instead of cursing, this came out of Balaam's mouth. Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And that star, that scepter, is none other than Jesus Christ. And that ancient prophecy, a thousand years before Isaiah, 1,700 years then before Jesus came on the scene, is about Jesus who will crush through all the enemies of Israel when He finally returns. One more burden for the night, chapter 17. Verse 1, the, the oracle concerning now Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. Damascus, capital of Aram back then. Damascus is, you know, the capital of Syria, Syria today. In fact, you can look down from the heights, the Golan Heights, and you can see out to where Damascus is there in Syria. It's said to be, by some, it's said to be the oldest city in the world. That's interesting. The oldest city in the world, but here it says Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. Now, it did. In fact, over the years, Damascus has fallen, ruined and rebuilt, ruined and rebuilt, kind of similar in a way to Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. But there's a greater ruin for Damascus, for Syria, that is being prophesied in this chapter. Verse 2. The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in. There will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram and they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, keep your Bible caps on. He just mentioned Ephraim. Ephraim is not Aramean. Ephraim is Israel, right? Ephraim is the name often given because of the largeness of the tribe. Ephraim is the name given to northern Israel, the northern kingdom. This prophecy here against the Arameans is, begins to shift and be more really against northern Israel than the Arameans. Why? Because the two were in league together. Politically, militarily, they got in bed together. The Arameans and, and northern Israel, the, the Ephraimites. And so this prophecy is truly against both. And Ephraim is going to feel it the most heavily of the two. Verse 4. Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade, and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain and as his arm harvests the ears, or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. 
In other words, Israel is ripe for judgment. Ripe for a harvest, but a harvest of judgment. This once glorious kingdom of David and Solomon, Isaiah says, is going to be picked over, emptied out. It's going to be used up like like an old field, a few ears of corn uh, here or there, but the bulk of the people completely gone. Why? Because the people forgot about God. I mean, it really is that simple. Every single one of these. But especially Ephraim. They trusted in alliances, in political partnerships, in arms and weaponry weaponry and military strength, and they forgot the Lord. And we see in Isaiah a little bit further down, chapter 30, verse 15, this, this quite famous verse, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You were not willing. All you got to do is rest in me, the Lord says. All you got to do is be still before me. And I got you covered. But you were not willing. You know, that, that rung like a bell in my ear this week. I, I looked up that verse and I realized Jesus said the same thing. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says, how often... I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You see, the offer's there. As it is for you right now, tonight. The offer of peace, the offer of comfort, the offer of strength, the offer of wisdom, of understanding, the offer of the Lord to take charge of your life and to begin leading. The offer's there in repentance and rest, in quietness and trust. The problem is we're so unwilling. God says, Israel, you are unwilling. Jesus says, Jerusalem, you are unwilling. Your Savior is right here. But you are unwilling. All it takes is a willingness to put faith, trust in the Lord. To let Him be the lead of my life. Now, this prophecy about Damascus and Ephraim This burden here, what's interesting is it was fulfilled. Aram fell in 732 B.C. We've been over that date. Israel fell, northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. Many of you are familiar with that. But this burden is placed by Isaiah in the midst of those that were dated 20 or 30 years later. Which is interesting to me because, well, wait a minute, then it's really not a prophecy. (laughs) It's more of a history. Even if he prophesied this before it happened, which I believe he did, Isaiah, by the Spirit of the Lord, placed it right here among burdens that were all dated around 701 or later. So, is it a legitimate prophecy? Is he just repeating a prophecy already fulfilled? Did he forget that Israel had already fallen? What's the deal, Isaiah? Or might this actually be a prophetic burden for a time yet to come. A time further down the line. And that's what I believe. Verse 6. Yet the gleanings will be left in it. Like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, famous phrase for Isaiah. He uses this when talking about the end times almost exclusively. In that day, Man will have regard for his Maker. And his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. What is Israel going to do? Their eyes will, they will mourn for the One. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. 
And they will mourn over Him. And so Isaiah here says, His eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of His hands, nor will He look to that which His fingers have made. Do, Do we? Do we look to that which our fingers have made? Or do we look to the Lord? Even the Asherim and incense stands. In that day their strong cities will be forsaken places in the forest. Or like branches which they have abandoned before the sons of Israel. And the land will be, he says, a desolation. And I believe this is looking forward to a time way down the line, beyond the days of Isaiah, beyond the time of Israel falling, beyond even A.D. 70. Because this... Speaking right here, this is portraying and picturing forsaken places of the forest and abandoned branches or literally abandoned treetops. And what Isaiah is describing here is treeless, barren, abandoned land in Israel, in Ephraim. When Titus conquered Israel in AD 70, one of the things he did was he clear-cut all of the olive trees, or the vast majority of them, off of Mount Scopus and off of the Mount of Olives. And he used the wood for burning. And so Jerusalem, suddenly this this verdant, tree-filled, lovely place, had all the trees cut down. You know what happens when you cut down trees? Climate changes. Furthermore, down the line, in the, in the waning days of the Ottoman Turk Empire, the land became completely denuded of trees because the Ottoman Turks placed a tree tax on the land. Well, what did the people do? They wanted to cut their taxes, so they cut their trees. And the land became completely barren, an absolute wasteland, a desolation, exactly as Isaiah said would happen. But it goes further than that. Verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Oh, America. America, America. My words, not Isaiah's. America has forgotten the God of her salvation. And it becomes more horribly clear every day. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, here's what you do. You plant delightful plants. And you set them with vine slips of a strange God. Now the word God there is added in. So it, it literally is you set them with vine slips of, or with strange vine slips in the Hebrew. Strange vine slips. Verse 11, in the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. In the morning you bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap. A hill of beans. <laughs> In a day of sickliness and incurable pain. Vine slips. Strange vine slips. It's Zur Zamora in Hebrew. Zur Zamora. What does that mean? Foreign shoots. He says, what you do is you've forgotten your God. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. So you start to look out and it's a picture of transplanting. It's a picture here of of grafting in non-native plants that seem to be pleasant enough. They're ornamentals. They look nice. They smell nice. They're pretty in this land. Let's try it in our land. And he uses this picture to talk about planting something foreign that now will become for you a harvest of horror. It's not going to turn out well. Kind of like the scotch broom. (laughs) You know, that permeates western Washington and absolutely irritates my nose 
Every year, the Scotch bloom, it's an ornamental. It is not native to Washington State, but some moron (laughs) from Europe said, hey, let's bring this over. It's a gift. And it's just... We can't control it. It's sure pretty, though. Oh, it sure is pretty. (laughs) Burns nice, too. (laughs) It's bringing in a foreign... It's pretty. It's pleasant at first, but it starts to take over. And that's what Isaiah is describing here. Are there little slips? Are there shoots? Are, Are there graftings? Are there splices getting into your life? Are there things that I'm bringing in? Oh, but it looks so good with them. Oh, it looks so cool for her. Oh, it's great for him. I'd like to try that as well, but it's foreign. It's foreign to a person of righteousness. It's something of the world. Gang, don't be transplanted. Be transformed. God says, Paul through the Lord through Paul, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. There it is again, the will of God. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Israel, they're transplanting. They're bringing in. They're trying everything out. The foreign gods, the strange clippings, they're bringing it all in. And it's producing a harvest that Isaiah calls a day of sickliness and incurable pain. Verse 12. Alas, the uproar of many peoples. Now listen, follow this who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but He will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, terror! But before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us, Israel says, and the lot of those who pillage us. The us is Israel. Listen, though, to how that burden compares to what Jesus described of what is to come. Luke 21, verse 10, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Luke 21.25, Jesus says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The prophecy against Damascus, against Ephraim that we read in chapter 17, like so many of Isaiah's prophecies, looks ahead to the tribulation. A time when Israel will find itself in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. And the only cure for their incurable pain will be that moment when they turn their eyes upon Jesus. And receive Jesus and believe in Jesus. And by the way, that's not going to happen at the end of the tribulation. A third of Israel is going to turn their eyes upon Jesus at the midpoint of the tribulation and they will be saved and protected. And chapter 16 already told us about it, but we'll talk about that on Sunday morning. There's one last word I want you to hear tonight. And it's in the middle of chapter 17 and to me it's one of the greatest words in the whole Bible. It's a marvelous little word. Look at verse 6. Yet. What a great word. Yet. 
You see, the glory of Jacob will fade, verse 4. The fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will even be like the reaper gathering in the, the standing grain in his arms, harvest the ears, or it will be like the one gleaning ears of grain. The gleaners were the ones who came in after the harvest. The harvest is gone. The gleaners came in to pick the leftovers. And he says that's where Israel's going to be, like picking up leftovers, yet, yet, gleanings will be left in it. It's like shaking an olive tree, getting all the fruit off it, but there's still some there. See? There's still a remnant of Israel. There has always been, as I've told you before, a remnant of Israel in the land. There has never been a time when the Jewish people were not represented in the land of Israel. They've always been there. The remnant. God has a remnant. God always has some standing grain. Even if all of Washington State votes in Gay marriage, if it gets to the ballot. There's going to be a remnant standing here. I told Cheryl after I heard about the vote, I said, man, that kind of stuff just makes me want to move to a different state. And then I thought, but no. We're supposed to be here. What better place to shine than in more darkness? There's always a remnant there. A few olives here, a few olives there, some gleanings. There's always been a remnant of Israel. And even for all the burdens and the judgments that they've had to face, the one thing Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, and Aram could not say, Israel can say, they can say the best is yet. The best is yet. And there is eternal hope in that little word. Even if everything should go wrong for you, yet, God is still on the throne. Even if your body should fail you, yet eternal life is a breath away. Even if your friends and family should turn against you because you love Jesus, yet He will not forsake you. I love what Job says, Job 13.15, Though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. God Himself can come down from the heavens and kill me, but I will still trust Him. And I will assume it was His will, it was the right thing to do. Job says, Habakkuk says, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there should be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, we'll lose some battles, yet we have won the war, praise the Lord. Let's bow. Praise you, Father. Thank You, Lord, that You are so gracious and so loving and so forgiving and, Father, so patient. Things like the vote that took place this week happen and in my flesh I get angry and I just want to shut down the whole program and go home. But, Father, You are still waiting. You are still patiently giving people time to know Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be like Jesus, that we would be walking in grace and truth. Not one over the other. Not people who are just about all manner of tolerance with no concern for righteousness. But at the same time, not people who are so legalistically righteous that we're unloving and and ungracious. Show us what it means to walk by the Spirit of Christ in grace and truth. And may we not have to compromise either one, Father. Fill us with Your Spirit. 
that we might walk according to Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.